If you will, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 for our study in God's Word this evening. We have started in our series entitled Prepare to Meet Your Enemy from Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 18. That text says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now in this text of Ephesians chapter 6, we're commanded by the Apostle Paul to powerfully stand against the spiritual forces of darkness. And this standing is apparently so important in the mind of Paul that he actually mentions, if you noticed it here, four different times. Did you see that? Look back at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Stand is uh, stani in the Greek from histemi, which means to put, uh, to cause to be in a place, to stand, to make stand, or to stand firmly. And here Paul says to stand firmly against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. That's another form of that word. Again, against Satan, against the forces of darkness, against the evil day, you're withstanding in that evil day, which of course is every day because darkness is all around us, evil is all about us, and having done all, he says, to stand firm, or to stand. And then verse 14, stand therefore, he says, So four times we're to stand fast, we're to stay put, we're to stand firmly. And if we didn't know any differently, and because of the three uses of what we might call supernatural power words in verse 10, we might say that Paul is telling us that it is our responsibility to take the initiative in this intense spiritual battle and maybe even further, to actually go and take the initiative to to make war with Satan and his demon hosts. Notice what he says in verse 10. Finally, be strong. There's one of our power words. Be strong in the Lord. And in the strength, there's another power word, of his might. Yet another power word. So if we're not careful, we're going to see this as some kind of um, charge, some initiatory move. To go out and, and, and do battle with Satan to sort of say, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you on. I'm actually going to take the initiative. I'm not just going to stand here and uh, try to resist you. I, I'm actually going to go on the offensive. I'm not just going to be in a defensive position. I'm going to go forward. And you might even have seen, of course, not just in charismatic circles, certainly there, but in other circles, uh, it seems to be that that's what they believe that this passage and other passages may be teaching. Doesn't it say strong, strength, might, 
We've got this power. We, we have this supernatural force behind us. It's called the power of God. It even says in chapter 1 in Paul's prayer, it's the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. So let's go out and do battle with Satan. Yeah, let's take him on. Gives us the, the armament of the battle here. Gives these, these uh, various ways that we can take Satan on. Now I think those who might suggest something like that would quickly and, and readily qualify uh, what they think Paul is telling us here because it says that this strength is in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So they would qualify it a bit and say, well, we're not talking about our own power. We're talking about the power of God. And so let's use His power. And since He's given us that power and He's told us to rely on that power, then let's go for it. And if you hear from many, many of these professing Christians today, they take these qualified phrases of Paul to mean that since we do indeed possess the very power of God at our disposal, we're to therefore utilize God's very power to cast out demons from inside of people. You've known of that. You've seen that. You've heard that. Some people say, yeah, let's use that power to exercise these demons from spiritual bondage of the person and use supernatural power given to us by God to even raise the dead. I've had people come to me and say, I believe I had that power to actually raise people from the dead. Now they may not say, well, I, I even have the power coming from my handkerchief like Paul or the power of my shadow, but certainly they seem to suggest that they have power to do many miracles, many marvelous, miraculous works. Maybe, maybe even likening themselves to Jesus and the apostles of the first century. And I think there's an ever-increasing fascination even in the secular world for supernatural power. I mean, if you've been seeing some of the television series that are now being produced, there's one now that has just started. I think it's probably starting this week. I won't be watching it, but it's called Lucifer. It's a new series on television called Lucifer. And every time you turn around, it seems like someone's talking about a ghost or an apparition or maybe even a zombie, right? It's very, very prominent in our culture. You walk in any Christian bookstore or maybe even any bookstore for that matter, maybe especially secular bookstores. You walk into Barnes & Noble, for example, and it, it reveals multiple volumes written from every angle on angels and supernatural powers and demons, even Satan himself, and demon possession and demon oppression and the occult and witchcraft and many other things associated with the cosmic underworld and even the cosmic overworld. And as you delve into various studies of proclaimed Christian writers and theologians regarding the subject, you'll find all kinds of strategies that they suggest and they would advise us to use, all for the purpose of engaging in what we might call spiritual warfare, doing battle with Satan. There are books written on the spiritual warfare movement. There are people who believe that there are actually territorial spirits who are the lords over certain cities, and they control what's happening in those cities. Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Houston, Buenos Aires, Rome. They, they believe that there are unknown forces, demonic forces that are controlling what occurs in those cities where there is the infestation of crime and murder and adulteries and the backlash against authority. And there are those who teach such things. There are, there are conferences and seminars where Christian people are being invited to attend, and these people get up and talk about how to battle against territorial spirits in our world. And they have these very elaborate seminars that teach. They have manuals that are published, books that are written on these subjects. And, and I think because this is such a, a critical matter for every Christian, I, I want to sort of start here in Ephesians 6, and before we actually get to the the various pieces of the armor of the believer to sort of hit this subject and to summarize a biblical teaching 
on this topic and make sure that we understand some of the implications of what Scripture seems to be telling us about the spiritual battle against our enemy and to give ourselves an opportunity to to help others and to help teach them and instruct them and maybe even in some cases to correct them about some of these things. These are very, very important issues that, that ought to be raised. And we want to look at these things with a very, very careful biblical eye. And as we do, I want you to know that I don't intend to try to come across as though I have the corner on truth on all of this. I'm just like you and, and others who just want to be noble Bereans, just studying the Scriptures to see whether these things are so. We want to put the searchlight of Scripture, the, the cross-referencing gaze of the whole of the Word of God to see if these things are so. And I know some of these people who teach these things are otherwise precious people, people who believe, and to some degree at least, maybe even some of them are themselves uh, a bit deluded, confused about some of these things. Maybe someone has been raised in some kind of environment in which uh, they have been brought up to think these ways, or some of them know exactly what they're doing, and they are charlatans and frauds and fakes and phonies. But I think there are a good number of people who are genuine believers in Christ, but who might need to be taught better when it comes to some of these things. And I want us to see if we can sort of uh, synthesize a coherent theology of, of Satanology and demonology and, and uh, even work toward defending ourselves maybe against the onslaught of what you and I might receive, even at the hands of other Christians. Now, generally speaking, I will present the position of what has been commonly called the cessationist position. Cessationism. Which is a term that I don't prefer. But it's the term that we have been labeled as, and that is that we believe in the so-called cessation, the ceasing of these miraculous sign gifts of the first century. Namely things like miracles, that is miracles through a miracle worker, or a faith healer, so-called, as they are known today. Tongues, the interpretation of tongues, uh, the kinds of, um, of miracles, a word of wisdom, word of knowledge uh, that the Bible speaks of, that uh, maybe someone who has a prophetic gift or opportunity uh, might be able to do in the first century to teach the church and to arm the church with the truth, because we know that Revelation was not... Uh, completed at that time. We'll get into that a little bit more. So that position has been commonly called cessationism. And I own that position because I believe it to be the best position available with regard to some of these things. The other side of the spectrum, people would call themselves, some of them, even though they don't like this term either, a continuationist. A continuationist. And you can even see by the very definition of these two terms where someone might be going. A continuationist would say, I believe that all of the gifts, including the so-called sign gifts of the New Testament, are still in action today. They are still prevalent today. Going on somewhere around in our world. Maybe not as actively in this place or that place, but somewhere in the world and maybe in many places of the world, the continuationists would say these sign gifts, that is uh, miracles and uh, continuing revelation and prophecies and tongues and the interpretation of tongues and uh, miracle workers through uh, faith healing exploits and even the raising of the dead and the exorcisms of demons out of people uh, would be what they say is simply nothing other than classic Christianity. It's just the extension of the church's mission all the way from the first century now to our 21st century. So they would call themselves, of course, by definition, continuationists. Now, some of the misnomers about both terms for someone who says that they are a cessationist, that doesn't mean that they believe that all spiritual opportunities to minister and all giftedness in the church has ceased. That's what they do not believe. We don't believe that. We believe that people are ministering out of their giftedness and out of what God has called them to do to minister to others. It's just these so-called sign gifts that we're talking about uh, or what we could call the ministry of the miraculous. 
And likewise for the continuationists. There are some of them along the spectrum who would say uh, there are some things that are continuing, but I don't believe this or that is continuing, including some of those continuationists who would, who would say and affirm, I believe that revelation, that is the revelation from God, specifically special revelation, the idea of the Bible itself as that special revelation from God has also ceased. Uh, that God is not continuing to write books of the Bible. When someone gives a prophecy or someone uh, speaks what they call a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. So there are on both sides a a kind of um, a spectrum where people are saying, well, I believe this and I believe this and I believe this, but I don't believe that. So don't call me a continuationist with that kind of label because that that mislabels me. Or someone will come along and say, well, I don't believe everything has ceased, so don't call me a cessationist because I believe some things have ceased but not others, so don't call me that. Well, for the sake of shorthand and for the sake of our opportunity to teach, we'll continue to use those terms and we'll talk about them. Now, tonight, I want to talk about One of three things. I'll give you all three tonight, and we'll talk about the first tonight, and then we'll talk about the other two next time. And there are reasons, at least from my vantage point, why we should consider ourselves cessationists with regard to the ministry of the miraculous. And the first one, which we'll talk about tonight, is that I don't believe that with the close of the ministry of Jesus on the earth and his miraculous exploits and the miraculous exploits that he gave his apostles and those closely associated with him, I don't believe that those kinds of miraculous deeds are occurring today in others who we might call either apostles or even those who are miraculous workers, however you label them. I don't believe those things are of either the kind or the extent of what Jesus and the apostles did in the first century. Okay, So one of the implications, and we'll talk about this chiefly tonight, is that I believe that what Jesus and the apostles did was utterly unique to the first century. Utterly unique. And in that sense, unrepeatable. Unrepeatable. Secondly, I think what happens with the continuationist side of the ledger is that they fail to see the implications of another unique and unrepeatable act. And that was Pentecost. Pentecost. Okay? In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit joined Jew and Gentile into the body of Christ to form the body of Christ. And in doing so, from our look at the book of Acts, and you can see that very, very well as you see the outflow of the book of Acts, that this too, this Pentecost event, in the forming of the body of Christ and in the supernatural revelation from God of what was happening there with the formation of the body of Christ and all of those miraculous events, including tongues, especially tongues, the ability for someone to not ever know a particular language, to have never studied that language, and yet to supernaturally, by the Holy Spirit's power, speak that language the very language where someone else was hearing in their language. That was their language. And when they heard that, they heard the gospel, and they responded to the gospel, and they were added to the body of Christ. And when someone interpreted that message, that language, that unknown tongue, that they had never known, and they were speaking in those churches, like the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and when they were interpreting those unknown languages, the things that they were not familiar with, they had not gone anywhere to a school and studied those languages, and when they came to that language by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit and people were converted and instructed and encouraged and edified. That was a miracle from God. It was a bona fide miracle from God. 
And in that sense, when you saw that moving out, even into the Gentile world, as you move out from Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts, and when you see those miraculous works going through by the hands of the apostles, that's why we call the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles. You can see John and Peter and Paul, and they were moving through miraculously, and God gave them the gifts and the abilities to do these things, raising people from the dead, healing people in such a way that these miraculous events were, were, were forming or helping to form the very body of Christ, including the very preaching of the gospel. That is a unique event in the history of the world. And by that, unrepeatable. Unrepeatable. Thirdly, there was what we might say the recognition and ultimately the verification by that recognition of what Bible books were to be included in our canon, and then when that canon was closed, then there was no need for anyone to say, I have a prophecy, I have a word from the Lord, I have a revelation, this is on par with the very scriptural attestation of this word, and so therefore, because the canon of scripture a scripture was closed, there was no additional need for revelation, and when in fact that canon was closed, then that unique and unrepeatable act of the very, very closing of the canon of Holy Scripture as that was recognized and then perpetuated in the, church, in the churches, there was no more need for the miraculous because Scripture was complete. Done. We didn't need anybody to come alongside and say, I've got a prophecy. We didn't need tongues. We, we didn't need the interpretation of tongues. We had the full and complete revelation of God inscripturated in the Word of God. And I don't believe continuationists, as much as they want to try to answer those things, do the kind of job that at least I and others are satisfied with when it comes to the idea of the very implications of those three unique and unrepeatable acts in salvation history, in God's timeline. And I'm convinced, beloved, that those three things give us, by way of implication, the very confidence that we don't need those so-called sign gifts to operate in the church today. Now, I'm going to talk about the first of these tonight. That's the idea of Jesus and the apostles. And I want you, if you will, to both have your Bibles ready and also maybe a uh, a pen and paper ready because we're going to go through some passages and I'll read some of these passages and in some cases I'll make comment on them but I want you to be ready at least to write some of these passages down because I think they're going to be important for us so we'll just talk about this one matter and then we'll pick up with the other two next time and then of course as I said we'll do a part five on what demons can do to Christians and then we'll roll, roll right into the very armor of God itself in Ephesians 6 and complete our series Here's this idea. Here's my premise. You might want to write this down. And I'll put it in a question form because this is a debated matter. I, I understand that. I get that. I understand that people, professing Christians, are going to fall on one or other of the side of this particular issue. And so I'll pose it in a question form. Was the ministry of the miraculous, and we're not talking about other things that were done, we're talking about the ministry of the, of the miraculous, was the ministry of the miraculous performed by Jesus and the apostles, and of course, others associated with them. There were others, of course, others like Mark and other Bible writers who came alongside them. They were closely associated with them, as Mark was with Peter. But was the ministry of the miraculous performed by Jesus and the apostles in the first century a unique and unrepeatable ministry? Or does it continue in the church today? It's a great question. Was the ministry of the miraculous that was performed by Jesus and the apostles unique and unrepeatable? Or is their ministry of the miraculous continuing today in the church? It's a great question. And you've got believers on both sides of that issue. And as I said, in some cases, very fine men and women. Very wonderful. I'm not... I'm not here to try to prejudice anybody by, by assassinating the character of someone by saying, well, they're Looney Tunes, they don't know what they're talking about, they're charismaniacs. Not at all. Some of these people are very fine 
men and women, believers in Christ, love the Lord, but I think they're on the wrong side of, of this issue. And what I'd like to do tonight is to try to give you a sense of where I come to. And I want to talk about it in such a way that I not only think you'll be encouraged, but I think also instructed in ways of looking at the Gospels especially that you might not have looked at before. What do I mean, that, like, uh, what do I, I mean by that? Let me tell you what I mean. When we begin to look at the New Testament, I find it most interesting to note that this matter, this issue of the ministry of the miraculous, that is healings and miracles and tongues, interpretations, etc., is basically confined to four New Testament books. Out of our, out of our 27, only four have an explosion or a profusion of discussion about examples of activity in the miraculous. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. That's where you find it. That's where the, that's where the battleground is. And one thing I think we need to understand is that Jesus and the apostles, their activity of casting out demons and healing the sick, or popularly, as I've said already today, called supernatural spiritual warfare, warfare encounters, things like, like that. You'll hear all of these terms tossed around. I believe that we need to study the Gospels and the book of Acts in order to find out what is our theology of spiritual warfare. What would be what I believe regarding these things? Well, you've got to study the Gospels and you've got to study the book of Acts in order to find out. Now, not to the exclusion of the New Testament epistles, but the profusion of, of, of that activity is occurring in those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, the Synoptic Gospels and the book of Acts. And the rest of the, the New Testament, particularly the epistles, do not intend to give us the exact same approach that Jesus and the apostles used. It's just not there. Look for uh, some kind of uh, warfare model about the exorcism of demons in the book of Colossians, um, in James, uh, in First Peter, just to name a few. It's not there. Now it is in the book of Matthew with regard to Jesus' ministry, right? It's in the book of Acts with regard to the apostles' ministry, but it's not there in the epistles. I mean, you have something here in Ephesians 6, but even here uh, you don't have some kind of a spiritual warfare ministry, uh, a manual, as it were, to tell you how to exercise demons. And when I say exercise, I'm referring specifically to the Greek word ekbalo, which means to cast out. Jesus cast out or threw out the demon from someone. And someone has coined that kind of ministry of the miraculous, like the exorcising of demons, or if you don't prefer that word, they call it ekbalistic ministry mode. E-M-M. Ekbalistic, from ekbalo, to cast out. And you don't find that in the epistles. You, you don't find that there. But remember, those who would disagree with what I've just said would have us attempt to use Jesus' own method as their own precisely because they find it in the Gospels. They find it in the book of Acts. And they might say, I think somewhat naively, they might say something like, well, if it's in Matthew, it's good enough for me. If it's in the book of Mark, it's good enough for me. If it's, if it's good enough for the apostles in the book of Acts and what they did, then I'm supposed to be doing exactly what they did. And I think that's, as I said, a bit naive. They, they sort of employ what they assume is the same methodology of the Lord Jesus. In fact, they might even look at a passage like Mark chapter 6. You might turn there, Mark chapter 6, just to go through a few of these passages together. Mark chapter 6, verse 53, for instance. Mark 6, 53 says, When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him that is Jesus, and ran about that whole country, began to carry here and there uh, on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Whenever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were being cured. That's what the NASB says. 
they were they were being healed. And you might have someone come along and say, that's what Jesus did, and Jesus told us that we're supposed to do ministry like, like Him, and so we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to do all we can. We've, we've got the power of Jesus, power that raised Jesus from the dead. We're supposed to be praying, and, and we're asking God for that kind of power so that people could, could be healed if they're sick and, and if they're, they're hurting. We need to reach out to them and, and try to touch them and, and cure them. And They would even contend, some of these folks, that because this is what the Bible said, both Jesus and our own kind of method should be the same. To eradicate disease. In other words, they would say, they would say this is the kind of ministry that we're also, also supposed to be involved in. And they would even go further. They would say, say it's not only just the kind of ministry we're to be involved in, but we're even supposed to have the greater extent of that ministry than even Jesus himself did. You say, what? He virtually eradicated disease in Palestine. You're, you're talking about we're supposed to do not only the kinds, the same kinds of works, but even greater works? Well, yeah, John 14, 12. Look at that for a moment, John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Folks, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that verse quoted by those who are on the, the other side of, of this issue where they're saying not just the same kind of works, but even the greater extent of those kinds of works. Because Jesus said, and greater works shall you do. You might say something like, well, wait a minute. Ephesians 6, my friend, doesn't say anything about this. And they would say, oh, but it does. It says we have the power. You say, yes, but it doesn't have some kind of ministry methodology or manual here. And it even uses the word method. Here's the methods of Satan. So they say, well, we've got to have the methods of our own. And since we've got the power, Jesus will show us. And then sometimes it gets a little bit more muddled. When you're asking the question, well, exactly what are you to do and what passages do you go to? And they would say, well, for instance, look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all, all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with very, various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And they say, I don't see why we shouldn't attempt to do the same. And of course, I'm not, I'm not just talking about Christian television, where you go on that television and you see that and you find out that they're bringing people up on a stage, right, on a platform. And these people are beset with some of these things, or so it appears, or so they say, and, and they uh, sort of knock them down. I'm not talking about, I'm not trying to create a straw man here. I'm just talking about those people, and some of them very sincere. And they talk about, don't you want to believe God for power like that? Don't you want to see these people who are hurting and saddened by their physical conditions to be healed? And, and in a sense, they, they ask those sorts of questions. And, and you and I uh, sort of um, maybe seeing ourselves as uh, the, the have-nots instead of the haves. And, and sometimes this can become somewhat intimidating, right? I mean, someone says, don't you want the, the power of God in your life, the, the power to do these things, just as Jesus did, if he did them, and greater works you're supposed to do in his name, why aren't you seeking that kind of power? You can get fairly intimidated by something like that. You might even lay awake at night with your head on the pillow and say, Lord, maybe I'm on the wrong side of this issue, and, and, and maybe I'm not asking for the power, and that's why I don't have it. And, and certainly on the surface, sounds like a very simple and a very convincing interpretation 
But I think underneath the surface, we have to study Jesus' rationale for conducting his ministry in that way. Why did he do it this way? And we need to seek whether this approach should be both in kind and extent something that all followers of Christ are supposed to be doing and ministering to the hurting, whether physically or even demonically. I mean, what's the right biblical answer to these things? Sounds pretty plausible. And in fact, the charismatic movement worldwide is growing by Herculean proportions. It's probably one of the fastest growing elements of, of professing Christianity. So if someone comes along and there appears to be some demonic activity or uh, the kind of physical weaknesses and sicknesses and distress and some kind of demonic bondage, what kind of approach should we engage with them? Well, I think it's very, very helpful for us to look at two kinds of evil that are shown to us in the gospel accounts. One of them we could call, and I'm borrowing this from my friend David Pallison, who's written a tremendous book called Reclaim Power Encounters, Reclaiming Spiritual Warfare, to which I'll quote in just a moment. He says, when you look at the gospel accounts, you will find what are called two kinds of evil, or at least how you could uh, associate and group them into two categories. One's called situational evil, and the other is called moral evil. Okay? So here's his premise. You have in these gospel accounts, and of course in the book of Acts as well, what we could call situational evils and moral evils. Now what does he mean by that? Well, let me define situational evils. One of the first things that you begin to notice about the way that Jesus and the apostles dealt with those who were physically challenged or even demonically possessed was this. With them... With those folks in the lists of uh, epileptic, epileptics and paralytics and, and those who had a fever, um, those who were uh, demonically possessed, uh, there were ways that they were dealt with. Um, they, they were dealt with in a completely different way than Jesus dealt with those who had what we could call moral evils, who, who were sinners in the sense that they were sinning expressly against the Lord, as opposed to this situational evil where people were beset with something, whether it was physical or demonic. And when Jesus dealt with them, he dealt with them in a completely different way than he dealt with someone who was involved in what we could call moral evil. Okay? It's a very, very different kind of, of category. Now, it is true, and I was talking with one of you last Sunday morning, and they asked me a good question. And the question was, well, at times, because sin is all emanating from the fall of, of Adam's transgression, and that's true, isn't uh, all evil the same, or, or is it not the same? And I would say, it's not the same. Yes, it's true that we are all fallen in Adam, and it is true that our world is sin-cursed, and it's fallen, and we get defects, and we get all kinds of, of uh, besetting ideas like paralysis, like epilepsy, and also demonic activity in our world because our world, world is generally fallen. That's true. But we also have a kind of evil in our world that's even beyond that, which in some cases you could say that situational evil is beyond the control of some persons. But there are also various moral evils of the day, and we call this lying and adultery and fear uh, and angry words and a whole list of things that are given to us in the New Testament. And we say that falls into a different kind of category. Those are moral evils, and those are high-handed transgressions against the Lord, and that's different, even though those evils are also contained in the Adamic fall of mankind. But they're different. Listen to David Pallison, again, in that very helpful book. This is what he says. Listen carefully. One key to understanding spiritual warfare in the ministry of Jesus Christ is to notice that he mounted a twin-pronged offensive against the powers of evil, against moral evil and situational evil. Jesus employed two modes of warfare to address 
two different facets of the evil works of the devil. Scripture and everyday speech use the word evil in two distinct ways, situational and moral. A passage from Ecclesiastes 9.3 illustrates both. Quote, this is the evil, that is situational evil, in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, this is Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil. That's moral evil. So you have under the sun, under the, the fallen curse of Adam and his transgression, all kinds of evil out there that we could call situational. But there are also, in the very heart of man, his own high-handed transgressions against the Lord, and we could call that moral evil. He goes on to say, We both do moral, that is evil, and experience evil. That's situational. Satan's organizing passion is to draw us into moral evil, making us like him and ruling us. When the Bible says the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil, it means moral evil first and foremost. Evil includes the element of consequences. It means suffering, hardship, unpleasant and harmful events, death. This is situational evil, the evil we experience. One distinctive of situational evil is that both God and Satan use it. Although, of course, with opposite intentions. Satan's intent is to harm us, inflicting us with such situational evils and ultimately to murder us. God employs and applies situational evil too, but because he is holy, his intention is to chasten or curse sinners, purifying the faith of his people and judging those who rebel. Now I think that's a very, very helpful categorization of two different kinds of evil. There are situational evils in our world, and people are beset with them. And there are moral evils that we are involved because we make the choice to be involved with those kinds of evils. David Pallison notes this, The New Testament never, listen to this, The New Testament never links demonization to moral evil in the person who has a demon. That's very helpful. The New Testament never links demonization to moral evil in the person who has a demon. New Testament teaching does not connect inhabiting demons either to patterns of sin in the demonized individual or to the impact of other sins. In other words, if, if in the gospel accounts Jesus has come across somebody who is beset with situational evil, it's just the evil of the curse of living in a sin-cursed world. He does not stand against that person. He does not rail against that person. He does not mistreat that person at all because they're beset with situational evil. Now what does he do like with the Pharisees like we talked about this morning? And he comes to them and like Matthew 23, seven woes against them because they're involved in moral evil. What does he do? He speaks out against it. He speaks woes onto them. He chastises them. He rails on them because they're committing not situational evil, but moral evil. That's the difference. Now you know, there are some examples of this. What about the situational evil that Job encountered? Right? You remember in the first part of Job? Who was the initiator for Satan to consider Job? God. God said, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan, wanting that other intended purpose, not God's, but his own, and he says, well, let me do whatever I want to him. And God says, here are your parameters, right? And then what happened with Job? His family, his house, his livestock, his produce, everything, incinerated, gone. That's what we might call situational evil. What happened to Joseph? What about Genesis 50:20? What you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? Joseph had a lot of situational evil because of the curse of sin, because of Adam's fall, because of the sin of his brothers. But he had what we call situational evil. It was all around him. It affected him. 
And by the time you get to the Gospels, you have people that are beset, even physically speaking, with all kinds of maladies, all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease, and even demon possession. And Jesus didn't go up, as some people do today, and say to someone, you know, if you just resist the devil, he'd flee from you. Nothing like that. Nothing of the kind. He had nothing but compassion upon those people. No wonder he was all about doing the eradication of of these kinds of sicknesses and maladies and diseases and demonic possession in Palestine. No wonder. He had great pity and great compassion on people. But when people were involved in moral evil, now that's a thing of a different color. Look at Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, and you'll see this. This is an example of what Jesus is saying in the gospel accounts about moral evil. Not situational evil, moral evil. Mark 7, verse 21. From within, Jesus says, out of the heart of men. In other words, it's not, on, it's not what is on the outside that comes in that defiles a man. It's what's already inside that comes out of a man. That's his point. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things, these morally evil things, proceed from within and defile the man. And what does Jesus do when he comes upon a person like this? Well, he'll confront the sin he'll confront the evil he'll confront the lack of morality in the person and he'll challenge them with regard to the law of God and obedience to God and forsaking your sin and pursuing righteousness he never says to anybody who's involved in murder and theft and fornications and adulteries and coveting and wickedness and says I'm going to I'm going to ask the demon of coveting to come out of you ekbalo come out and do we not have that? Do we not see that in our world where, where people are actually saying and they're, they're blurring these lines between situational and moral evil and they're actually saying this person has the demon of lust inside of them. And we have to pray that, that God will, will extract from them the demon of lust. And it can get downright silly and stupid, to be honest heard somebody at one point say, we need to excise the demon of post-nasal drip from you. And I'm saying, what kind of lunacy is this? This isn't, this isn't God's word. This isn't his, his message. And this is one of the reasons, I think, my friends, that with Jesus and the ministry of the miraculous and the apostles and, and their commissioning by Jesus and his giving of them the power to do that was a very easy to understand reality. And what was it? The, the first century was building the very foundation and the very formation of what we would later know in the book of Acts as the church. The, they're, they're doing this ministry of the miraculous. And by the way, because Jesus was there in the first century in his earthly ministry and the apostles were being chosen by Jesus and as they went through, of course, even in the post-resurrection mission of Jesus through the book of Acts, there was this explosion of demonic activity. You, you can't read in the Gospels and in the book of Acts unless you see because of Jesus being there and the apostles being there, this explosion of demonic activity. Even to the point where at times Jesus would walk by and these demons who were present would say we know who you are the son of God we don't see that today you say well it's just because you don't live in an animistic culture and you're not there in these parts of the world where that's strong well I believe that there are satanic delusions and deceptions going on but not to the extent that was happening in the first century not at all and when Jesus was there And when all these demons were infesting people and possessing people, and when there was rampant disease and and all kinds of situational evil, Jesus, his heart of compassion and love for people who were situationally involved in this curse upon the earth, and he was the restorer of broken lives and broken limbs. Look at Matthew chapter 4. healing every kind of sickness among the people. 
every kind of sickness. They brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains. I read that to you. Demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Mark chapter 3, verse 10, he healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him wherever the unclean spirits saw him. And isn't this interesting? The groupings like Mark 7 where Jesus talked about all of those hideous sins and he gives that terrible list of them. And he says all of these things proceed out of the heart of a man and and that's what defiles a man. All the other lists that I'm giving you, I've, I've given you a couple of them. It talks about sickness and disease and paralysis and epilepsy and demonic activity and it gives the demonic activity right in the line of these other physical diseases. Isn't that interesting? It includes the demonic oppression within this situational evil context. Look at Luke chapter 6. We haven't looked at the Gospel of Luke but it's there as well. Luke chapter 6. If you don't go there, you can at least write it down. Luke chapter 6, verse 17. A great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. Now what's an unclean spirit? Demonic activity. And it's being listed there with people with diseases. And all the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. Now someone comes along and says, I want that power. Well, his name was Simon Magus, right? Book of Acts. I want that power. And what did Peter do? Pray, pray that you'd get that power. Pray that that kind of power would come upon you. Pray that that power would be used by you just like it did with Jesus. You can do not only the same kind of ministry, but the very extent of ministry and even beyond because of John, the Gospel of John. This is what it says. Even greater work shall you do. Is that what Peter did? No, he actually confronted him and he says, you phony. Why did you think that you could buy the power of God? Pray and repent and turn from this evil that God may be gracious to you. Now, there wasn't this uh, sort of ecbalistic ministry mode that the apostles were selling to others. Look, you can be involved in this too. You, you can do this too. No, this was confined to Jesus and the apostles. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 21. He cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. I quoted that this morning. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Here's a couple of examples. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Now that, folks, is, is what we call a situational evil that had beset Mary Magdalene. And the Lord was gracious to remove seven seven demons from her. Luke chapter 9, verse 42. There was a boy, and a demon was inside the boy, and the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Folks, that's not the kind of ministry that you and I have the power with which to minister. That was unique, unique to Jesus, unique to the apostles. And frankly, even if that kind of ministry was available today, I, for one, if I were involved, would have fear of ministering in that context for fear that not simply my own motives, but the fear of people who would take the wrong direction from either me or some person who had what appeared to be superhuman strength. Do you remember even in the latter part of the book of Acts when Paul went to a group of people and, and the other, uh, one other apostle was there and they were saying, gods, gods. And they said, no, we're human beings just like you. They tore themselves because they were in anguish because don't look at us like that. 
This was, this was something that even as you look at the New Testament, as you see it outflow, and the New Testament epistles particularly with, with Paul later on, even in, even in the pastoral epistles where ta- Paul tells Timothy to take a little wine for his ailment. Why didn't he just heal him? Why didn't Timothy just heal himself? Because you, you already had begun to see this profusion and the dealing with the explosion of these so-called uh, events and circumstances and the healing of such begin to fade. Look at Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. There was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by what? By a spirit. Some kind of demonic, ugly spirit who for 18 years had plagued this woman. And so you didn't have someone going to a person like that and saying, you know, you've got a real moral problem. You see, you deal with them differently. This wasn't like Jesus' list in Mark chapter 7 where you've got envy and wickedness and unrighteousness and adulteries and fornications and anger. No, this is a woman who was beset by an unclean spirit and she was bent double and she couldn't straighten up at all. And he said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Now someone's going to say, wait, I object. I object. And I would even acknowledge if their objection would be something like this. Well, isn't there at times a crossover between situational and moral evil? Where someone may be involved or or have involvement with a kind of situational evil that besets them and then they sin as a result? Sure. Sure. There, There can be some of that, of course. Severe consequences in their physical body that then motivates them to dishonor the Lord with their attitudes, with their hearts? Sure. Couldn't there even be someone who you might say, well, they've, they've got a pattern of uh, drunkenness and, and now they have cirrhosis of the liver or someone who's involved sexually and, and now they have an STD? And, well, sure. The moral evils that, that people commit can sometimes look and appear as though they're involved in the situational evil category. And sometimes it's not easy for us to to discern all of these things. I'm not suggesting that they're completely opposite or separate from one another. It doesn't mean that there isn't any link whatsoever with situational evil or moral evil. But David Pallison rightly says, and I think this is good, quote, this does not mean the sick and presumably the demonized are not sinners in addition to their affliction. Without repentance and faith and obedience, the temporarily healed will face far worse sufferings, a threat of hell. Without repentance, faith, and obedience, the exercised will face seven worse demons and also a threat of hell. Sure. There can be someone who's healed of their situational evil, of their, of their situational circumstance, and when they're healed, if their hearts aren't right, and if they don't repent and turn to the Lord, worse things could happen to them, Right? course but clearly in in the gospel accounts a person who's an unclean spirit is said to have a fever or convulsions or a paralyzed limb and when those situational evils are cured by jesus and the apostles then there might even be at times this admonition go and serve the lord and tell no one about this go and glorify God. Go, go to the priest and tell him that you've been healed. And the expectation is live a godly life. Live responsibly in repentance and faith. This is, this is a very, very critical matter, I think. Pallison says, Not a single example in the Bible shows Jesus or the apostles using ecbalistic ministry mode, EMM, to deal with moral evil. The indwelling, unclean spirits, like other forms of suffering, perhaps created conditions of temptation to moral evil for the victims, but we have no evidence that demonization was either caused by sin and unbelief or that it had any bondage-creating influence to perpetuate sin or unbelief. I think he's right. I think 
what we need to do is kind of restructure our thinking here and look at the Gospels and even the book of Acts in a, in a far different way than maybe we have up to this point. And I think people who are involved in these kinds of ministries or, or who are looking for this kind of power are looking in places in which the unique and unrepeatable has occurred. And not, for instance, in these epistles and not here. Look back at Ephesians 6 as we close. Look back at this. It does say, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Yes, it does say that. And what Paul means there is that you have to take on the very strength of God, the very power of God. Yes, I agree with that. To do what? To put on the whole armor of God. Not to go out and be involved in ecbalistic ministry. Not trying to cast out devils. Not trying to heal people as though you're a faith healer or you're a miracle worker. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take your, your armor. That's, that's your ministry mode. That's, that's my approach. I need to have the belt of truth, according to verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness. I need to have my, my shoes on my feet, which is the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the ESV says, the shield of faith the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and praying at all times. That's my ministry mode. And if I start thinking that in addition to something like this, I have to, to do in, in what we could call the, the, the spiritual means of grace or the spiritual ministry mode, in addition to that, I need to do the ecbalistic ministry mode. Casting out devils and, and seeing disease and sickness be taken away from the person at my hand because of the power that I'm seeking. I don't think those two are what we're called to do. I think Jesus and the apostles' ministry was unique in the first century. And we can praise God for that. And we can praise God for what it did and what it attested to. And that was that Jesus indeed was the Son of God and that He did come from God and that the apostles were attested by Jesus because He gave them the authority to cast out demons. The book of Mark says, Sure. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it tells us, at least to my level of satisfaction, exactly what those signs were for. And it says, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. That's the signs of an apostle, a true apostle. I'm not an apostle. There's no apostle alive today. If it's true historically that the Apostle John died on the island of Patmos and he was the last apostle, and when that apostolicity died away with the death of the last one, then those signs died away. They ceased, as well as the signs of the apostles. They were true apostles, and they were attested with those signs. But when they were ceasing to exist themselves from that human vantage point, then those signs themselves began to vanish away. And I think we would do well to, to see this implication. Now, I grant you, it's an implication from these texts. But it seems to me a very warranted and valid implication. Now, next week we're going to talk about the second implication. And I'm going to take you through passages in the book of Acts that show the ministry of the miraculous and how the apostles were involved in that kind of ministry for the unique and unrepeatable Pentecost event. There's no Pentecost that's going to happen again because there's no reformation of the church that's going to happen again. These were ministry exploits of the apostles for the sake of of doing what Christ wanted them to do in His post-resurrection glory so that they could be a part of the forming of the very body of Christ. That's a unique and unrepeatable thing. And then regarding the Scripture itself and how the canon of Scripture was recognized and how the revelation of God was closed with the completion of that canon. 
and that we ought to be rethinking some of the things that we see and maybe you would have a conversation with someone. Maybe you could further instruct them and encourage them to think a little bit differently and maybe unloose in them some burdens that they carry. I've got to be involved in this ministry. I've got to seek the power of God. I've got to cast out demons. We've got to be involved in this deliverance ministry. I even talked to somebody this morning who was saying, you know, I talked to people and somebody said, uh, we just bought a new home and, and, and we've got to go in there and before we actually move in, we've got to pray the demons out of the house. Now some people say, well, that's wacky and that's weird. Well, it may be for our ears, but there are people who genuinely believe such a thing. And they believe that because the devil is real and and spiritual warfare is real, and it is, that that's the kind of thing we ought to do to pray the devil away, to pray these evil spirits away, and how those evil spirits may be even affecting us physically. And my response is, you're you're basing some of that theology on things that aren't here. They, they, They not only are not in the text... But even the things that are in the text can be explained very legitimately and very responsibly and with sound interpretive principles, and they don't seem to suggest that you should be involved in those kinds of ministries at all. I mean, isn't it true that it's hard enough for us to keep our armor on, to do, to do battle against Satan with truth and righteousness and faith and salvation and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God? That's all I need. That, that, that's all I have time for. That's all I can do. I'm, I'm praying at all times and I'm persevering. I, I don't have time and, and the inclination to, to go around and, and involve myself with all kinds of ministry modes that I don't see explicitly explained in the, in the text, especially of the New Testament epistles. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to give us further insight as we continue to study. Father, thank you for the time in your word tonight. I know it's maybe sounding a little bit more academic or more technical, but Father, I pray that that which has been communicated tonight is, while technical or somewhat difficult to understand, is nevertheless helpful and instructive for all of us, myself included, so that we could indeed stand and be involved with and pursue the things that your word tells us with regard to Satan and spiritual forces of evil. And for some of these things that we hear about, that we read about, that we hear from others, even noble Christians, even fine men and women who profess and know and love the Lord Jesus, but who are involved in things at times that seem far a field from what we're called upon to do. And so I pray, Father, that you would grant us ready hearts to hear more instruction about the unique aspects of very, very important things. Apostolic signs, like we've talked about tonight, and unique and unrepeatable Pentecost events in salvation history from the book of Acts, and the completion of the canon of scripture and the ceasing of special revelation lord we we need to talk about these things and we need to understand these things not just because we want to have a ready answer to to debate with others regarding but that we know these things and we have a handle on those things and then also with our need to put our armor on and to keep it on to stand to stand firm to stand therefore to withstand and resist the evil day May we do it for your honor and your glory and for what you've instructed us to do to be protected and guarded against by the evil forces who are real and who are in our world and who want to destroy us and attack us. Thank you for giving us your truth and the implications of your truth for our good and for the glory of the church and for the glory of your great name. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.